honesty in states as well as individuals will ever be the soundest policy. The words of President George Washington. And this is The Guardians of the Republic. Hello, I'm Patrick Murray from the Monmouth University Poll, and my co-host is Ian Kahn from the TV series Turn, Washington Spies. On this episode of the podcast, we look at the unique challenges faced by the Republic this week. We'll cover other news stories in our Hot Take segment and wrap with our Guardian of the Week. Please make sure to subscribe and give us a rating in your favorite podcast app. But first, Patrick, the number one pollster in America, by rated by 538. Sorry, I had to do it. What is new on the polling front? You have a new poll this week. Yes, we do. So uh, there's not much new on the impeachment uh, uh, front in terms of polling that we don't already know. But our Mammoth poll out this week from Iowa is a good lesson on how the whole Democratic nomination is really unsettled. And in fact, how this impeachment hearings and the process could play into it. So let me just break it down real quickly. So we have Pete Buttigieg joining Joe Biden, Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders up there at the top of the pack. Now, a lot of the media made huge, huge, huge deal out of the fact that Pete was actually in first place in our poll. He was at uh, 22%, whereas uh, Joe Biden was at 19%, Elizabeth Warren at 18 and Bernie Sanders at 13 Now, that's the first poll that showed Pete Buttigieg ahead anywhere in any poll at any time. He was behind by one point in a Quinnipiac poll in Iowa just a week ago, but uh, which means it's basically the same results. But the fact that we do have a poll with a different front runner than we've had ever before. In Iowa. Has, and, and Iowa, but anywhere, uh, has made a lot of news. But I, you know, digging down to this, and, and Pete's very popular. And one of the things that we saw is that he's more popular now in terms of his favorability rating is much better in Iowa than Joe Biden's or Elizabeth Warren's. Elizabeth Warren's is, and Joe Biden's have both dropped back a little bit as they've been under attack. Joe Biden's been under attack for a number of things. Elizabeth Warren, once she became the front runner, became under attack. I would expect Pete Buttigieg is going to be under attack, too, now that he's got a target there in Iowa. However, one quick difference, if I might, which is that Joe Biden is under attack from President Trump and the whole Hunter Biden experience and what's going on in Ukraine. Ukraine. That is sticking, and I'm seeing it just with individuals who have been for Biden and are worried about what this is going to mean. Part of the reason why so many people are jumping into the race with Elizabeth Warren, it's not just that to me that she was the front runner. It's also because her plan came out, and all of a sudden it's a thirty trillion dollar plan for Medicare for all. So it's sort of really giving the meal, like we're naming what's in the meal, and it's making people uncomfortable and nervous. I just wanted to throw that in there because I I don't think it's just that they were you know at the top of the, that there's a target on them. I think that there's legitimate things that are moving those numbers. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. This is not, uh, and when I say there's a target, there's a target that means that there are things now coming out that legitimately are causing voters to take a closer look at these candidates than they have before. And that's why I think the same will happen with Pete Buttigieg, because now he's going to have to do the same thing that Warren did, which is, you know, where's the meat that goes with the potatoes? And uh, he's going to have to address that, and we'll see if he weathers that uh, really well. I don't think that's going to be his challenge. I think right. he's going to struggle in, in other spots. Just want to throw well, it in there. He could. Okay. But one thing uh, before we leave the polling front is that I want to point out here, though, is that this is extremely fluid. We found that only 28% of likely Iowa caucus goers are firmly decided. And 
In fact, only 29% said that they would be very disappointed if they had to go into caucus night and change who they were going to support. And who is largely, who largely of that 29%, who are they supporting? The 29% who said they would be disappointed? Yeah, that they are so locked in that if this person is not the nominee, they're going to raise heck. There are two candidates uh, who really uh, pulled those folks in, and they are Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden. Hmm. I've talked in the past a lot of Joe Biden's support has been slipping, and that's where it's been going. But the support that he's still hanging on to are people who see him as the only person who can potentially beat Donald Trump. So they're hanging on. So those folks would be disappointed. The Bernie Sanders folks would be disappointed. The other candidate supporters are more willing to to move around. And that's why I'm looking at, you know, Pete Buttigieg is fluid. Elizabeth Warren continues to be fluid. And there's another candidate in this mix that I am looking at that could potentially rise up. Mm -hmm. And that's Amy Klobuchar. I believe we've been talking about Amy Klobuchar in this exact state for quite some time. And there she is. The polling data suggests that she is a she is a significant second choice. She is that if these things keep moving around, she's somebody who could pop up to the top in the next couple of months. All right. So anyway, that's and and these impeachment hearings, I probably are going to have a big impact, particularly, as you mentioned, around Joe Biden and his reputation and whether he can handle the heat that's going to come out of this. But let's now I'm wondering, this has gotten, wait, real quick, though, yep. I, this has gotten a lot of news. I mean, this got a lot of coverage, similar to your Elizabeth Warren at the top of the polls, where it was being, where you called an outlier and everyone else called an outlier. I felt then about that poll as I feel about your poll today, which is that it, it what, what it looks like is a little sneak peek of what we're going to see if things keep moving in this direction over the course of the next few weeks. Because Elizabeth Warren at the top of your poll was just a shock to everybody. And then just three, four weeks later, that was being seen by every other poll. Am I am I right with this idea? I will say to you, it, you know, it's hard to determine what's going to come next. But this change in the dynamic for Buttigieg feels more solid and on firm foundation than other bumps in polls that we've seen for other candidates, such as Beto O'Rourke or Kamala Harris. So I agree with you. I think this one feels like it's real. Now, it, it could. It's possible that it doesn't last because. Pete Buttigieg comes under greater scrutiny, but um, this is certainly not something that just popped out of the blue. So I agree with you. I think this is something but real that, quick, that, like that indicates if you had to, a future. If you had to throw something out there, Patrick, about, you know, for me, Biden, it's pretty obvious where his Achilles heel is. It's his son right now. Mm-hmm. For Elizabeth Warren, it's his, it's her policies. Are we going to, where would you guess that we're going to see with Buttigieg that where we're going to start seeing his Achilles heel in the African-American community? I mean, yeah, clearly this, that's, that's a big part of it. Is there anything else? Because it's not going to be his policies necessarily because his policies seem uh safe if nothing else well he's been he's been pretty careful about not really having specifics on his policies unlike elizabeth warren who was really backed into a corner with having to have a plan he doesn't actually have to do that because he's never actually put himself out there but you're right it's it's the african-american community in particular because you know his rise in iowa and even some new hampshire polls show him gaining there has been across the board in those two states, but those two states do not have non-white voters. They don't have Latino, a significant amount of non-white voters. Uh, yeah, I mean, they're you know we're talking about five percent, six percent, up to ten percent non-white voters at most will be participating in these Democratic uh, contests in Iowa and New Hampshire, and that's one thing where we have seen a weakness with Buttigieg that uh, we've seen with some other candidates like Warren, for example. But we've but over the past few months, we've seen Warren make some gains with that, that, that those constituencies, why she might not be their top choice, 
are more comfortable with her. We right. have As not seen that Mayor same Pete. thing with, no, with Pete. You're right. right. But, but however, if Mayor Pete does come out of Iowa, wins Iowa, let's just say, uses that momentum to finish top two in New Hampshire, it really does put him into a strong position. Yeah, it'll be, interesting to, it'll be interesting to see how folks down the line view him if that does happen. Uh, because particularly if Joe Biden tanks in Iowa and New Hampshire, those voters in, in Nevada and South Carolina who like Joe Biden but now no longer feel he's viable will be searching for another candidate. And will they suddenly become more comfortable with Mayor Pete or will it be at somebody else? But now let's move on to how the republic is being challenged this week. It's been a remarkable week in America, a historic uh, few days. Um, Patrick, do you want to give some background on what we've seen so far? All right, so we've had the first public hearing, as you mentioned, and let's talk about what exactly this was. So we had two witnesses that had testified privately or testified behind closed doors, now repeating basically that testimony in public. So this was George Kent, who's the Assistant Secretary of State for uh, the Eastern Europe, and Bill Taylor, who is was the envoy to Ukraine. He was uh, basically serving in the role of the ambassador while we didn't have an ambassador and actually had previously served as the actual ambassador to Ukraine uh, under uh, the Bush administration. Mm -hmm. So these two are coming out and they're basically laying out what they knew about the Ukraine policy and Donald Trump holding back on funding that had been approved by Congress to help Ukraine and uh, and doing so because he wanted the Ukraine to investigate Joe Biden uh, as a political enemy. Now, one of the great things was the explanation of how important Ukraine was. Right. And I think this is this is important. So what you know, you're listening out there. Well, why, why does this matter? You know, you uh, support to a to a foreign power that's not even a big power. Uh, and this is because Ukraine is really the, these folks who have been are lifelong uh, public servants with um, stellar military backgrounds. Yeah. Uh, I mean, just incredible. Generations. Generations Gener yeah, on Kent's side, should, yeah, too. Just incredible backgrounds. Okay, so they really feel strongly that a strong Ukraine is uh, our bulwark against an, a very aggressive Russia. Now, you know, younger folks listening to this uh, podcast uh, might not remember the, the, the Soviet Union and the Cold War um, and might not see Russia in the same way as these folks do. But they, they see Vladimir Putin as very much in the mold of those Russian uh, communist leaders in the sense of being this autocratic person who wants to control uh, the world, uh, you know, get respect for himself, control the world. So the Ukraine is their kind of that, that stop. And what I found was really fascinating about Kent in his explanation is he kept bringing him back to analogies with our own revolutionary war. Yeah, you know, I love this stuff, right? And pointing great. out, why should we help Ukraine against Russia is the exact same thing about why France helped us against the British. Because if we, if they, France did not do this, we would not be an independent country. If people like uh, Kosciuszko and uh, Rochambeau, Pol Rochambeau, Pulaski, Lafayette. Lafayette, if they did not come over and help us stand up to what was the biggest power in the world at the day, then we would not be an independent country. And so he is making that analogy. Ken's making that analogy. That's what Ukraine is right now. Ukraine is fighting against this power that wants mm -hmm. to bring us down. 
And that's why we're stepping in there. We're not stepping in just to help Ukraine. And it's a nice thing to do. It actually has analogies for why, you know, from the very start, this is what U.S. foreign policy has, has been about. Yeah, and it was it, the description from both of these men. Uh, really, you know, we talked last week about why this might be different than the Mueller investigation, and I, yeah. I, I made the point then um, that that there, there were different jobs. Mueller was coming into it like an actor who was trying to not put on a good show, to do everything he could to not make news on the day. These two gentlemen, Bill Taylor and George Kent, were the flip opposite, as I sort of somewhat expected that they might be, but they were both absolutely just out of central casting. I, I spoke to uh, Dean Melissa, who plays George Washington at Mount Vernon, who is a good friend. And I said, you know, he didn't watch he didn't watch the full thing. And I said, I have to tell you that I think that General Washington would have been so pleased to see human beings of this character, who of this amount of uh, honor, who were representing our country, even during this very, very challenging time. These two men sat there. They were fantastic, both of them. And they both had different specific things that made them unique and powerful in what they did. With Kent, uh, he, he wore a three-piece suit and a bow tie. His open, both of their opening statements were ace. Top, they were tens. They 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 laid out the problem. They were very clear about them. They were great storytellers, and they were actively doing their part to show how challenging this was to the republic. The story that they were telling. Now, just right. to get to some performance. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Patrick. Yeah, well, this is what I, I I was thinking of in terms of what they were doing. They were laying out facts. Mm -hmm. This is the facts of the case. This is the facts as we saw this as public servants in. Uh, uh, operating under the guise of promoting U.S. interests, both overseas and protecting our national security. So this is how we view this. This is we are not looking. This is whether we we like or dislike the president and what he's doing. Is that this is our policy, and mm -hmm. this is where we're uncomfortable with things going on. Uh, they were talking about the irregular channels or the back channels and the regular channels, right? <laughs> yes, and, that's right. And what Bill Taylor was talking about is that the irregular channels, which involved Rudy Giuliani, involved uh, Sondlander, uh, the, who's the Volker. Um, uh, ambassador to Europe and Volker and so forth, uh, that involving other people who weren't normal, wouldn't normally be in the mix. But what Bill Taylor was saying, as long as both the regular channels of communication and the irregular channels of communication were on the same page with what the ultimate goal was, that he didn't see a problem with it is when he realized that they started to diverge in what they were doing, that it became problematic and, and not having a clear U.S. policy was, was problematic. But as you pointed out, there, there was a clear difference between this and the Mueller hearings just to the way these two guys presented themselves through that, those five and a half hours. Absolutely. Bill Taylor. Uh, actually, I'm going to start with George Kent. George Kent would answer a question and he would lean forward when the question was asked of him and turn on his microphone somewhat dramatically, answer the question. And then depending on who he was responding to, specifically to the Republicans who he was looking at with such derision and in answering the questions, he would finish his answer and flip off his microphone as if to say, yeah, I've said my piece. There's no more to say. It was very powerful. He was in control of every moment that he had in that room. And then Bill Taylor, Bill Taylor was absolutely fantastic. He sounded like Tom Brokaw, his, the quality of his voice. It was actually, other people, I had read this online. Peter Baker was the first person I saw who mentioned this. Is This is exactly, I think, what the Democrats were hoping that Mueller would have done. 
which is sort of be this father-like figure looking disapprovingly at what was happening in our country, which we just got tastes of with, with Mueller, whereas Bill Taylor was using his finger to point and make points at moments. He was, I mean, he was, he was very aggressive and charming, both aggressive and charming in his answers. And Mueller's testimony was like a car that was uh, trying to get in gear. Like, and it was stalling constantly, which made it almost impossible to watch. This was like watching a Maserati speed down the highway. These men knew who they were. They knew what was right, what was wrong. And they were there to tell their story. They were the perfect first witnesses for, uh, for, this, for this impeachment inquiry. And it really did set a perfect tone. It was very, very impressive. Did you get that same feeling? Because I watched all five and a half hours... You didn't watch it. You, you, you yeah, I listened to it. I, I actually listened to it. I had it on my computer at work um, while I was doing some other things. And I will say that voice-wise, Bill Taylor made you sit up and take notice Yeah. every time he, t- every time he talked. Kent, not as much in terms of his voice. I, I think but you had to face. see him. You had to see him. To, yeah, yeah. what you're saying. <laughs> you had to see him. Bill Taylor, though, commanded you know, your respect just from his voice. Mm-hmm. Without even seeing him, uh, and uh, that's why I, I, I walked away impressed by their preparation mm-hmm. for what Absolutely. they were going, what they were up against. Now, obviously, they had done this already once behind closed doors. We don't know how that that happened behind closed doors, but uh, you know, I think that that certainly helped. But what also did you happened to see? Did you did you happen to watch Bill Taylor laughing at Jim Jordan? Did you no, catch that part? No, I didn't see that. You know, the difference, one thing that you may have missed having listened as opposed to having watched is the look of despair on the Republican side. They look like a football team who was losing the game by 28 points and there wasn't really much that they could do about it. It was like, we're just going to keep throwing interceptions here. And they wanted to keep their head down. I mean, you know, Devin Nunez, even from the top, he really didn't have much to say. And we'll get into that in a moment. Actually, I want to get on to the council because one thing that you and I both were have been asking for, for the Democrats, uh, is that this idea of having someone come in to ask questions. And the council, they had counsel on both sides who each got 45 minutes. Schiff took a good 20 minutes on the Democratic side. Um, but I found the the council very fascinating. What did you What did you note from that experience of having the council do the job? I did. I heard two very different types of lawyers up there. And as as you said, this is what we wanted to hear. We wanted to hear the council questioning them. We wanted to hear a a longer back and forth between council and the witnesses. Uh, Daniel Goldman, who was the Democratic counsel, mm-hmm. uh, was brought in. I think he's just recently brought into the uh, Intelligence Committee. He had served as a prosecutor in the U.S. Attorney's Office in the Southern District of New York. This is a guy with prosecutorial experience, and you could hear it in the way he phrased his questions. The content of his questions were all about, let's set up the fact picture. You give me the facts that, that fill in these blanks. I will then put the pieces together and paint the narrative, or, or the, you know, we'll have a report that will do that. But I'm not gonna, I don't need to ask you to paint the picture for me. I just need you to give me the pieces that I need to paint that picture. And the Republican counsel, Steve Castor, an entirely different uh, type of questioning there. Uh, so he's been with the Republicans on that committee uh, for, I think, like 15 years now, at not really a prosecutor. He's somebody who works on behalf of his client, who's the Republicans, and tries to give them what they need. You know, there's lawyers who that's what they do. And that came through. 
because yeah. that's what he was doing. He was saying, here's okay, what here, I I, here's what I want. I want this picture painted. So mm-hmm. I need you to answer these very, these, these questions in a way that gives me a, a narrative that I can use rather than just give me facts and I'll build the narrative. I, I felt badly for Steve Castor. Uh, he was absolutely overmatched. Both of these councils were extremely nervous. Daniel Goldman was extremely nervous. He was going to the uh, water bottle regularly early. And I know as a performer, when your mouth gets, uh, you get the cotton mouth in your mouth because you're feeling the nerves and you just want to, you know, shake it up. It took him a good 10 minutes to really settle in and not sort of be, have his eyes staring directly at Taylor and Kent, who were the opposite of that. Both of them were just natural, fabulous, and did their jobs in, in a wonderful way. Goldman was very nervous, but still extremely effective. Steve Castor, poor guy. I mean, you just, you just felt like he was scared the whole time that he didn't want to mess it up because, and, and, and he didn't have much to work with because the facts were not on his side with these two. You know, he was trying to spin different yarns about, well, can we talk about Joe Biden? And they're like, I, I don't really have much to say about that. Though he, they even caught him on that at one point where they wanted to go into Biden. And they were like, yeah, no, I'm, I, I'm quite sure there's, there's nothing there. Yeah, like he was, he's asking the, the um, he was asking Kent, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, Castro was asking Kent whether Hunter Biden was qualified to serve right. on the board of an energy committee. Now, that's what the, the grandstanding members of the committee do. That's not what you do as the council. That's what I'm saying. He didn't have much to work with. It was like he had he had a lot. It's like if you're ever giving a speech and you you got to fill ten minutes and you really only have six minutes of content, and then you start saying, "So, uh, how's everyone doing? <laughs> how's it going for you?" So it was it was what we have been asking for because then after that forty five minutes and then forty five minutes, then the uh, different congressional the, the different Congress people had their five minutes and frankly I thought overall we'll get to that in a second I thought they overall did a really good job. Yeah, and uh, I think one of the things was that was interesting about this was that the Republicans were trying to keep throwing things in here. Uh, you know, points of order or, you know, can we do this? And the mm. way that Adam Schiff yeah, controlled okay. that, the chairman, the way he controlled that process and was like, hey, you ask the question, he can answer the question, move on. Let's like, talk about Adam Schiff. You and I got into, we, we both, and this was before it became sort of public where everybody was getting on Adam Schiff, when he did that first uh, public thing and he sort of uh, said, eight times you called and eight times you asked. And we both knew immediately that was a bad thing that he did because he was opening a door. And it made both of us question whether he was the right person to run these impeachment hearings, right? Because it really should have been Nadler, but then Nancy Pelosi said, we're going to go with Schiff. Based on yesterday, Nancy Pelosi made a dead on right call. That was the most impressive chairperson uh, work that I have seen in Congress in my lifetime. He was he was handling, as you said, these points of order. He was completely unflappable. He would say, "How well, you would like to be recognized for what reason? Okay, well, you've been recognized. Now we're moving on. Now we're moving on." He was firm. He was seemingly very fair. Um, well, did, I think I think that's down to your point of view whether he was fair. Fair but, enough, because there was yeah. that one moment where he did step into a question that the uh, Republican counsel asked that could have been 
perceived as unfair. That's that that is true. But other than that one moment, I thought that he handled himself. And then in his questioning, his lawyerly questioning, he did, frankly, to me, an even better job than Goldman did in his first 15 minutes. And he then would come back occasionally, not every time, and would get things back on the right track. I, I really, yeah, I thought, a, I thought yeah, he was better. It was better than he had been before in terms of that, because as you said, when uh, on that very first hearing that we had, who was it with? Was it with Lewandowski or some? I can't remember. No, I, I can't remember who it was with. But where he just laid out, okay, here are the crimes that that Donald Trump committed in his opening yeah. statement. It's like, well, well, then why are we having this here? I mean, just played into the Republicans' hands, right? That this is but this is learned. all a done deal. But I, I but think he learned. he learned. And but the important thing is, while I think you can have an argument, and I'm looking at it and saying whether he was fair or unfair. Uh, in shutting down the Republicans. The point of shutting down the Republicans is shutting down the grandstanding that we were worried about. Um, So it might have been unfair in some instances, but overall it avoided a lot of the grandstanding that was going to make this a very difficult situation. You know, in a way, each one of these days is going to be like its own experience, right? Its own organism, its own football game, right? So I think the Republicans are going to learn from yesterday and they're going to say, we're not going to let that happen again. Because if if we just sort of sit back and, and don't disrupt this, the, the facts are so not on the president's side, it's going to be problematic. Mm-hmm. So I think your Schiff is, Schiff's job is going to get a lot harder and he's going to, the, the Republicans are going to do, do more to disrupt the process. But let's talk about some of these, um, some of these questioners, right? So let's start with the Democrats. You were particularly moved by Sean Patrick Maloney, as was I. What, what is it that you saw? Well, this is one of those things about listening to this rather than watching it. I then, uh, when Sean Patrick Maloney, uh, congressman, started his questioning, I stopped what I was doing and went and looked at at the screen to follow him Mm -hmm. because he was just really, um, you know, going through the Taylor's military service. Yes. And asking him, so what what military accommodations have you won? Which one is (sighs) that? Isn't that for valor? Yeah, uh, and you know, just really so laid out the uh, the the credibility of this witness in and a then, very, very, very solid way. Let me add on to that. He then asked him, "How did it feel when you were on the battlefield and the Ukrainian general thanked you for the aid that you knew was being held back? How did you feel in that moment?" And um, Taylor said, "I felt terrible. It was awful." Because I was not able to say to him, yeah, but it's being held up right now. It was very, very effective on uh, Sean Patrick Maloney was, was, gave great questions. Eric Swalwell also um, was, had found a nice little moment where he asked them if they were never Trumpers. And that, that was very effective, didn't you think? Uh, yeah, I think so. Because it, you know, again, laid out their credibility. Mm-hmm. Of you yeah. know who they are, they're never Trumpers because they were standing for this stuff before anybody even thought of Trump as a possibility of being president. This is uh, you know they really laid out that this is no different than how they felt about Ukraine and and our policy towards Ukraine prior to Trump. That's and, right. They really laid that out. The last one we wanted to talk about was Peter Welch, and you had some thoughts about him, well, as do I. I. I mean, I only want to talk about him, just mention it, because if, if anybody, any of, any of our listeners have really been paying attention to what was going on, that's Peter Welch was probably the one member of Congress that they heard something about. Peter Welch was the one who, after Jim Jordan, the Republican, had said, we would like to have the person who started this all in front of us, the whistleblower, 
Peter Welch came back in his question. He said, yes, I agree. I'd like to have the person responsible for starting this all in front of us. And so Donald Trump, the seat is here for you whenever you want to sit there. <laughs> it was uh, clever. Yeah. It was clever. It was it was unimportant, really. It was yes. a nice little sound bite. Um, but Welch was actually very nervous up there. He yeah. he had his five minutes were very shaky, but it was a nice but little it, moment. That he I really, had. I did. I, yeah, I wanted to mention it mainly just because I think you and I agree that it was one of the least important moments of... Absolutely. And that's the one that I said, if our listeners have heard anything from any of these members of Congress, a clip from that, that's probably the one that they've heard. One of that's least important. And again, that gets into uh, the coverage of this and what this all means. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. Uh, but I know we want to talk about the, the uh, give some time to the Republicans uh, first and how the Republican members handled this. What do you think? Well, I thought the facts, they, they didn't contest any of the facts. Um, that was that was. They, they went after process. And uh, John Ratcliffe, who was up for the uh, head of the intelligence and thankfully was not uh, confirmed in that, was never even nominated and took his, his name out, he was a very loud and proud. He, he I think that Ratcliffe's style is what we're going to see a lot more of, which mm-hmm. is sort of just trying to blow the whole thing up and say this none of this is appropriate. Yeah, and this is Ratcliffe. It was one where we're talking about the grandstanding and worrying about the yes. grandstanding and mm-hmm. and asking questions that are inappropriate of the witnesses. Yes. Um, so his question was, "Where is the impeachable offense in that phone call?" <laughs> and, Taylor, and, Taylor, or it was Kent. I don't remember which one. Sort of said, "That's not my job. That's your job." Right. Pal. And they laid that out from the very beginning. And that, you know, as you talked about at the. They just really stuck to their script. They knew who they were coming into this. Yeah. They knew how to fact stick to witnesses. their script. We are fact witnesses. That's not a fact. That is something for you to decide. That That's is right. not a That's fact your that job, I can bring pal. to the table. And 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 you know, to be fair on both sides of the aisle, you know, Democrats were doing stuff like that too. Joaquin Castro started uh, down this path of is attempted murder a crime? Is attempted robbery a crime? Then isn't an attempted extortion a crime as well? And it's like these these folks aren't lawyers. Why you know stop it. Just knock it off. Ask them yeah. the facts that they are they're not. But Ratcliffe, I think Castro I think Castro's a little under the weather too, yeah. to be honest. But hurt. you know, just to point out, you know, this this happened on both sides. This did Absolutely. happen on both sides. But I agree with you is that, you know, Ratcliffe is asking this, where is the impeachable offense in, the, in that call of a witness who can't make that determination because they don't have a fact base for what they're doing. And then Elise Stefanik. Stefanik, how, I think that's how it's pronounced. I think that's how it's pronounced. Yep. She's a 34-year-old Republican. She was went into the House at age 30. She's very proud, understandably, for being the youngest woman ever elected to the House of Representatives. She was a Harvard University grad, and she was very smart in the way that she was asking her questions. However, when I saw her in the press conference afterwards, she was just sort of doing what Ratcliffe was doing and sort of just trying to throw fire everywhere. So the five minutes I give her a really high grade grade for and then in her post event press conference uh, that grade goes down quite a bit yeah I was, she I was may, disappointed in what i saw actually. she maybe said another one she was another one like maloney who mm-hmm. i stopped and i went and i looked at followed her because she i was, thought she was really solid strong in, in the way she presented herself but remember the at the end and this is again we get back to the republicans didn't actually have facts on their side nor did they have a singular defense and I think that's what's key is they didn't have a singular defense. So her defense was, well, the uh, the aid ended up flowing anyway, so no harm, no foul. Right. That was that was her bottom line. That's everyone. And that's, that's and that's why Castro came back with this was well, an attempted extortion, a, a still a crime line of questioning is because she was saying that there can't be there can't be an impeachable offense there because 
the aid actually did flow. So we can't complain about that. Exactly. And now let's go on to Jim Jordan, who really, they, they brought him on sort of as a ringer. Uh, it was a, a tricky moment. Devin Nunez started to do his opening statement and then just passed it off to Jim Jordan, who is, um, I'm not a fan. I'm not a fan of the way he goes about his business. What did you think of Jim Jordan yesterday? He needs to put on a jacket if he wants to be taken seriously. Well, uh, and I, mean, I know, And I know that's a very minor thing, but, you know, it comes off as, you are trying to put a persona out there that you are something tough or different or whatever. And, and it plays like it's, it's a put on. Uh, so it's just the fact that he doesn't wear a jacket, big deal, but you know, it, it's that, but you know, Jim Jordan is, was there because he's a, a through and through Trump defender. And so he'll say whatever needs to be said that he'll like, he'll throw everything against the wall to defend Trump and see what sticks. Yeah, the first time he really was, he was questioning Taylor, and there was this fabulous moment where Jordan was going off on his, you know, rant, five-minute rant, not letting Taylor answer questions, and Taylor laughed in his face a little bit. It was sort of like, all right, buddy, I mean, you you don't really want me to answer the question, you just want to talk. And then when it went back to him later, he literally spent five minutes just talking about what a sham this was, and never asking one single question goes back to Schiff and Schiff goes, okay, I guess we're moving on and then moved on. My, my argument with him, the jacket is uh, emblematic, I think, of what my argument with him was, which was that he gets up and leaves whenever he wants. Like he acts like he's above the process yes. and that's that's very problematic. I, 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 in a way, I see what you're saying. The, the, the jacket seems like nothing, but in a way it, it, there's, there is something there. So we had our first public hearing. We have another one tomorrow. We're going to more next week. What do you think? Is this working out or not? I think that the fact that they had the private hearings first was very valuable. I think that it gave the Democrats an opportunity to understand what the roadmap would be towards success. I think that it was wise. And I think that now that it's coming out in public, it's very, very powerful stuff. I think it's been, I think yesterday, again, just yesterday, was an incredible success in just sort of laying out the roadmap of where this impeachment inquiry is going to go. So I I tip my hat to them. I think that they're on the right path. I think yesterday could have been a disaster, could have been the end of the whole thing, but at least they survived it. Yeah, I don't, I I agree that it was not uh, what I had feared it could be. Uh, The grandstanding was kept to a minimum. The fact that the initial questioning was done by counsel, that's the, that's what you walk away with mainly from this, from this hearing. What was, what came out in that initial exchange? That's what, what's, what's important. uh, And it was fact-based. I'm not sure how much this is going to move anything, uh, but uh, you know it's it's necessary. And one of the things that we saw in our polling uh, at Monmouth last week is that the public feels that they'll have more trust in the process now that it's going public. So we'll see if that actually does pan out. Yes, indeed. Now, now the question really comes, which is we, we talk about the Republic as sort of being like a patient and we're under, we're in danger and we're having some problems. So what is the prognosis and what do you see based on what we saw yesterday? So we've broken down, you know, we've just gone through this uh, hearing and we've just broken it down bit by bit. So I, I you know, we still need to step, step back and say, okay, so this is the, the game, the, the game day analysis of what happened. But where does this leave us in terms of looking at the end of the season? And I just got this signal that Republicans are continue to be more and more willing to dig in. As I said, 
They didn't have a single strategy. They had a bunch of strategies to try to undermine this. One of them was the investigation was really about Ukraine um, involvement in our elections and that they interfered in our elections and it wasn't Russia. And they're trying to sell that uh, bill of goods. Then it was... Well, Zelensky says there was no quid pro quo, so it ends there. The other one, as I mentioned, Stefanik's no harm, no foul, because the aid started flowing. Uh, So they keep just trying all these different things. They They don't change the facts. They don't say the facts were wrong. They just keep reinterpreting the facts in different ways. And, and I think in a way that muddies the water and shows that the Republicans are just willing to dig in and that we are in more danger uh, because of that. I mean, this is what Ron Brownstein just wrote a piece in The Atlantic. It's called Just How Far Will Republicans Go for Trump? Uh, and that was the exact question that he was asking is, can you just throw everything out the out the door that uh, that you're seeing in front of you? And I'm seeing more evidence of that. Yeah. The, but the, the question then becomes, you know, is this is this helpful? Right. Is this is this impeachment inquiry? Is this going to take us down the path of making the republic weaker or stronger? And I think the reality is that if we weren't doing this impeachment inquiry, the patient, so to speak, would be dying anyway. Mm-hmm. And that this may make the patient die quicker, it's possible, but it also could heal the situation because it's going to be hard to see. If if we have six more days like what we just had yesterday, it's going to be hard for all Republicans to sort of just sit on their hands and say, you know what, it's really fine. Everyone just has to get over it. And we have 10 more months until it'll be time for the American the American people to make their decision on whether we want to keep President Trump in office. I think that's going to be challenging for them to do. And I do think that if we didn't have this impeachment inquiry at all, and we just sort of said, okay, you know, let's just let it go, that that the Republic would be destroyed anyway. So it is a risk. It's not necessary. It's certainly anything but but tidy and clean, but it seems like an important operation to be done on the patient. It's like, let's see if we can get that infection out. I agree with you on that dangerous. analysis. I agree with you fully on that analysis uh, because this is what we know, is that after the Ukraine news broke, support for impeaching Donald Trump increased. Uh, then it leveled out and it's continued to level out. The other thing that we know, that I know from just studying public opinion, is that the thing that starts moving the needle now that people have dug into their trenches is that you need defections on the Republican side Yep. in in terms of leadership. The public takes their cues from their leaders, and you need leadership defections to say, oh, no, what do we do? You know, standing up for Donald Trump is one thing, but if I have to stand up for Donald Trump and that then undermines public faith in all the processes of the institutions, and we're never going to be able to get that back. This is the point I need to change, and I'll explain this why you're going to start bringing the public along with you. That's why I was, I'm was i worried about where we are right now, and that the signal is that we don't see those Republicans who are going, uh, Republican leaders who are willing to do that. However, I agree with you in the situation, which is we have to go down this path right now. We have no choice because you're right. It will be because then if, if, if nobody stands up and tries to say, look, this is what we are doing to this. Us. We are killing ourselves by allowing this to happen. Not just Donald Trump, but all everything that led up to the ability of Donald Trump to do this. That's what the problem is. And if we don't do something now or try to do something now, then we, it definitely is going to end up in the end of the republic. 
So, you know, we're, we're at that point to, to, to continue on the operating table. Yeah. We are at that point at the operation where it can go either way. Absolutely. And right now, it's but not looking that. good. Right now, it's not no, looking good, but you've no. got to keep going. You've but got- hey, at least we've got, at least we, we see where the problem is. And I'm going to tell you, William Hurd of Texas, he got a lot of tough uh, responses from his work yesterday in the Intelligence Committee. It's still early in this process. And one thing he did not do is he did not go along with the Republican talking points about process, which I did see him do on one of the news shows this past weekend. But when he was sitting up there, he was asking questions. And if if he continues, I can certainly see Hurd stepping out and stepping forward for the sake of the Republic. He hasn't done it yet, but I'm keeping my eye on any Republican who, like we talked about John Thune mm-hmm. last week, is heard from texas going to be one of those people who finds his way through so i guess the prognosis is the patient is getting the treatment that it needs right now but there's still no no guarantee that it's going to survive right all right big news a big week uh there'll be more of it in coming weeks and we'll be covering it on on this podcast certainly but let's move on to our hot take segment right now where we have 90 seconds to discuss a specific topic or news item and when you hear this sound it'll be time to move on to the next topic. So our first topic up for grabs is what's the deal with Nikki Haley? Uh, What a huge disappointment this week. Watching Nikki Haley come out with her book, with all due respect, I believe it's called. Uh, I watched her on um, the... A CBS show, and she came out and just, no, I'm sorry, it wasn't CBS. It was on the Today Show with Savannah Guthrie. It was nine minutes and 12 seconds, and Savannah Guthrie was ready to go. And basically, Savannah Guthrie said, is President Trump true, a truth teller, or does he lie? And are any, and Nikki Haley just came out in absolute full support of Donald Trump. And it would, became very clear to me that her goal is to be the Vice President of the United States, the nominee in 2020. That's what it looked like. And it was such a disappointment because one would have looked to her in a post-Trump Republican era to be, you know, the the standard bearer for mm-hmm. that party. And after what I saw, no, yep. no. Uh, remember a couple months ago, we talked about uh, that tweet that she sent after Trump mm-hmm. went after somebody. Then she tweeted, this is so unnecessary. Yes. And then Kellyanne Conway tweeted back, this is so unnecessary. Trump Absolutely. Pence 2020 as a, you know, a dig is like, you're not getting on this ticket. Uh, if you act that way, and then then we hear this, and then Trump, she's so apparently she's the only person that Trump's never lied to. If we, yeah, her. right, right. I, it uh, was it it was you know I I happened to know someone who worked with her over at the UN and who spoke highly of her overall and said that she she dealt with she she dealt she was a truth she was a truth teller based on what I saw this week I, she's my estimation of her has gone down and it will she's now almost in the Lindsey Graham category for me okay so let's move on to Robert Schiller in the New York Times wrote an article how lying and mistrust could hurt the American economy and you were very keen to talk about that yeah so Robert Schiller is an economist at Yale and I talk about public trust all the time that's my that's my uh, that's my bugaboo right here on this show and what he was pointing out was something related to what we have been talking about in trust if you can't trust the information that you're getting you can't trust that government policy will be what they officially say it is and that's exactly what we heard from this hearing yesterday that it wasn't that businesses around the world will lose trust in the information that it's getting and that this could have a significant negative economic impact. 
around, not just in this country, but around the world. And this is somebody who's won a Nobel Prize, Robert Schiller, a Nobel Prize in economics. Well, I, I hear you. And it's, it's sort of pervasive everywhere. It just came out in baseball that the Houston Astros, who are really one of the top three or four teams in baseball over the course of the last four years, has just been caught cheating. And that they've been stealing signs. And it's a it's a sort of a signal that we're living in a corrupt world, unfortunately. We're living in a world where if you can't trust that even baseball is is honest, that w- what can we trust anymore? Well, I mean, we know people will try to cheat, and we know this. What uh, Schiller is worried about is that these official announcements of fact cannot be believed. And that's exactly what we've been seeing with this hearings, is that there, there's, facts don't matter. Facts don't yep. exist. We can't trust them. And he's saying it's not just going to be political implications here. This is going to have economic implications as well. Yeah, All right. So let's move on to, um, oh, man. So like more people want to get into this Democratic field. Now we've yeah. got Mike Bloomberg and Deval Patrick. What do you think? I don't want to talk about Deval Patrick right now. I, I do want to speak about Mike Bloomberg. Mike Bloomberg is is one of the most polarizing people that you could throw into this Democratic Party. What an interesting situation we have here. The, the reality is that his policy of stop and frisk, that he continued, he didn't start it, but that he backed in 2002, 2003, and moving forward in his 12 years as mayor, is really, he's going to have to figure out a way to yeah, speak to that's that. That's not going to play take, well. But that's you know what? There are, there are a lot, but... There are a lot of reasons why Democrats don't like him. In fact, uh, you know, the, the, the news broke. You tweeted me. It was right after we, we had recorded our last episode that he mm-hmm. was thinking of getting in the race. Should we go back and add? I said, no, I'm not even going to add something to my poll. And then I decided to change my mind the next morning. And I said, you know what? Let me add Mike Bloomberg to my Iowa poll. And guess the what? The Iowa poll. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, guess what? You know, one person in the entire Iowa poll said that they would vote for Mike Bloomberg. <laughs> one, one person. One person. But- when we asked, do you have a favorable or unfavorable opinion of him? It was uh, one in five had a favorable opinion. Half had an unfavorable opinion and the rest had no opinion of him. He is more unpopular than the people who are actually running for president right now. And that's why, you know, him and Deval Patrick, voters are telling us, we don't need you. We've got enough choices already. What you're bringing to the table, candidates in the field are already bringing to the table. And if we wanted what they that message, we already have somebody to choose from. Go away. Yeah, but we nobody else you. has $52 billion that they can spread all yeah. over Super Tuesday. And that, that might play. That that Mike Bloomberg has something of a narrowest of right. paths to something. Now, let's talk about somebody who you wanted to talk about this week, who is also talking about getting back into the race, and that's Hillary Clinton. Now, I know you, you didn't want to talk about her. Uh, you didn't want to give her the time of day. Um, and I understand that, and you can go off it's on that. not that I don't want to give her the time of day, but but read, <laughs> read what she said, and then I'll, I'll, I'll right. give my so this is So this is why I wanted to bring her up, is that she had said in an interview, and her quote was, many, many, many people are encouraging her to run. And when I heard that, I said, like, who are these many people? And it just sounded so much like another candidate who was running for president in 2016, who would always say when he really didn't have facts to back him up or didn't really have the support that he uh, claimed, would say, a lot of people are saying that I'm the best, right? So she's starting to sound like Donald Trump now. And that's why I wanted to bring it up. This, she's, it's just sounding delusional. 
I, well, I, you know, I think that there probably are many, many, many people in her circle of people who are saying, look, with Hunter Biden, the only reason Bloomberg's in, Deval Patrick is in, is because Hunter Biden is at the front of the, is in the news constantly every day. So there is an opening there. The problem is for us to be talking about Hillary Clinton, who I have great admiration for as a secretary of state, as a, she was my senator in New York for, for many years and was a wonderful senator. And she brings a lot to the table as a human being. All of this is true. Unfortunately, in 2016, against a really bad candidate, she could not win and she could not continue where Barack Obama finished. And so for me, no, the answer is no. And I don't think that us talking about her helps anything. That's why I was sort of like, no, I don't want to talk about that. But you were like, yeah, but that's fun because okay. you don't want to and I do. So <laughs> yeah, there we all go. Right. All right. So our, our last one is... Um, uh, somebody who's been floating through these uh, the hearing yesterday, and that's uh, Joe Biden. What do you yeah. think is going to happen well, with him? I, I, I had lunch with a, a, a good, nice man who is a sort of a, a independent Democrat. Um, but he said to me, he said, you know, this this Biden stuff, when Trump gets his uh, when Trump starts nailing somebody on something that has any truth, it sticks on him. You know that, right? Mm -hmm. And I said, yeah, I kind of do. I think this Hunter Biden business is really tr problematic for Joe Biden. I, I think it's part of the reason why I think he wasn't sure that they wanted to get into the race in the first place. It's really a shame that this is the sort of bugaboo that hangs around Joe Biden's neck because I, I think this is... I think this is why we're going to see his approval ratings go down across the board. Yeah, I, I think so, too. I think this will stick and, and not necessarily in the way that Democrats will believe the charges, because I don't think they will. In fact, we polled when this first came out and they said, no, we don't believe them. But can he show that he can stand up to this? There's going to be a constant refrain that's going to come out against him. And, What's he going to say? Yeah, it, it looks bad, yeah. doesn't it? I mean, yeah, it does. It looks bad. Yeah, the nobody's kid. denying that, you know, his his son did this. He knew his son was doing it. He might not have, you know, consulted with him or whatever. And no, that's, he said, but that's going sure to come out. A, you sure this is a good idea? And he's like, yeah, I know what I'm doing, Dad. It's like, well, no, you don't really. Because yeah. this, puts, this puts his father into a really difficult place. Because he's getting a prosecutor fired, a corrupt prosecutor. But now it can look like it's because he's trying to protect his son, even though that's not the case. It's... It's very, very problematic. Yep. All right, so let's move on to our Guardians of the Week. I, I think both of us are in agreement on who stands in this place this week, and you want to say who they are. Yeah, I think we're going with Bill Taylor and George Kent here, who these are career, 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 career state officials. Who yeah. uh, That's been their job is to look out for American interests overseas, and they were willing to get up in those hot lights and the way that they performed and stuck to their guns. Uh, and Taylor's, so. Taylor's still the ambassador to Ukraine. He's still the acting ambassador yeah, so. to Ukraine. Don't know how long that's going to last, but yeah. he is definitely, you know, it's, it, and it, it's hard in a way because they both are so worthy of it. They both did such a fantastic job on that day. Um, they, they were in their power. They were in their center and they they did what needed to be done for the sake of their nation and all of our hats should be tipped to them i i, I think just wherever you are on the political spectrum you have to admire their willingness to uh, step forward and and make their facts be known so yep yeah i agree all right so that's it for this week's edition of guardians of the republic 
Please make sure to subscribe to get the latest episodes on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And please consider giving us a rating so others can find us as well. Also, check out our website at guardians-republic.com or on Twitter at guardiansotr. Thank you for joining us, and we'll be back with a new episode next week. See ya. See ya.